What a morning that has been speaking to James Daunt, founder of Daunt Books, CEO of Waterstones and CEO of Barnes & Noble now in the US. There isn't anything this gentleman doesn't know about running a bookshop. And I loved hearing the tale, everything from the way that the shelves were directed in his first shop, Daunt Books in Marylebone, to 300 stores and how you cope with Waterstones during a pandemic, but also the rule books he had to rip up in order to help Waterstones thrive. I was so enlightened with his views about how we save our high streets, how we bring independence back onto the high streets. And absolutely, he had very clear views on what the government has to do in order to support our local shopkeepers. I've learned so much. I think you're all going to learn so much. For all the bookworms out there, dine out on this one because there isn't a man, I think, more qualified to talk about the bookshop than James Daunt. It was just brilliant. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, James. It is such an honour to chat to you today. I was just telling you that your face has been cut out on my podcast wish list for about two years. So I started the morning by making you blush, but that is actually the truth. So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm flattered, as I'm sure is intended, but thank you. (laughs) Absolutely the truth. And, And Frank, my other half, his 60th was the wonderful Dawn book surprise voucher. I I've even given it to myself. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. So big, big fan. Now, I would love to start with your story at the beginning because your father was a diplomat and you spent the early years of your childhood in Turkey and Cyprus. What were your early memories like? And it sounds very exciting. I remember being sunburnt, um, but... <laughs> Yes. I mean, I think the life of a diplomat um, is quite a tough one because obviously every three or four years you move country. And for sort of children, that can be quite destabilizing for marriages, quite tough. Uh, In fact, I grew up in a completely secure and happy um, environment. You know, as a diplomat, there comes a certain sort of exposure to the world, which is, um, I think, fun and exciting and, and perhaps even sort of intellectually broadening. Um, so I feel hugely privileged in that respect and you know, have two sisters. And we had a, a very, very nice time growing up with um, sort of salt in, in it all is that um, I did what 
you know, was the tradition then and probably still persists, which is children get sent back to England to go to school. So I had, you know, the, the stereotypical boarding school education from, you know, what now seems a extraordinarily early age. And you, you go off at seven or eight really? um, and you come out when you're 18. Seems a curious way to educate people. But um, I, I went through that and actually loved it personally, uh, though I think it's quite a tough way to spend your childhood sort of effectively half the year away from your family and in this sort of peculiar institution that is a boarding school. I've spoken to a number of guests who've had this experience and it is one that um, does absolutely shape you. Speaking from personal experience, I was brought up in a lot of my childhood in Amsterdam in an international school and then I was uh, came back to the UK and I know you were you know back in Dorset and that sort of it's a very different world isn't it going back into the education system in the UK you were clearly an academic student which must have helped and from that you came out boarding school you went on to Cambridge where you read history and it was suggested at this point I think I'm right in saying that you would have a career in banking and that might seem like a good idea for you. Tell me about this. Did did it feel like a good idea to you? Because you find yourself in New York in the latter half of the 80s, the sort of culture of Wall Street at the time. And I can imagine that was very exciting. But is that what you pictured for yourself? Did you have a viewpoint on who you wanted to become? I didn't at that stage. No, I took the job because... In the university had a career service, which was, you know, <laughs> a, a nice office where you walked in and there were lots of folders which told you what different jobs were. And then there was a careers fair where all these companies sort of turned up and sort of asked you to work for them. Absolutely not a clue what any of them did or sort of where they might lead. So I very unimaginatively, frankly, just opted for the one that took me to somewhere interesting, which as you say, an American bank, um, then New York based, and just joined without a thought. When I started it, I, I actually loved it. It's interesting, it's exciting, ludicrously well paid um, then uh, as now, totally disproportionately for the talent that one brings to it is <laughs> you're just in the right place at the right time. And that was fantastic. It just completely didn't work from a sort of holistic sense in terms of you know having a, a broader spectrum of life. You just work as a banker, you really do put in the hours. And it is completely fascinating to you and to your colleagues, banker colleagues, it's of no interest to anybody else. (laughs) Um, And that is quite limiting, particularly to then the person who was my girlfriend who thought it was just a miserable way to spend one's life. Just set the scene in the, in those times because you I'm I'm going to go on to talk about you coming back to the UK. But was it that sort of wolf on Wall Street? Was it that sort of era? Because it must have been exciting because you were young, right? You were 24, is that right? In in this sort of... I, I think even younger. But yes, I mean, having a well-paid job in New York City, yes. sort of not doing a great deal other than turn up and be on the coattails of other people and, and frankly being, being starting to be taught the trade. Um, nothing could be more enjoyable. Um, sadly, it wasn't the late 80s. It was very much the mid to early 80s, <laughs> uh, when New York was was a, was a very, very exciting place. Um, it was pre-AIDS, that sort of scourge which ripped through mm-hmm. um, the city sort of shortly thereafter. And But it was before that, so it was in its party heyday. And yes, hugely exciting. But I was a child, frankly, and yeah. I, I was definitely far from the Wolf of Wall Street sort of <laughs> being in any way 
prominently involved. But it was a nice training and it was exciting whilst it lasted, which was for not very long. Then this is the time that you headed back to the UK. And as you said openly, it wasn't good for relationships. So you headed back to the UK and you founded Daunt Books. Now, have you always been an avid reader? So whilst everyone was partying, were you a bookworm or, you know, what, what was it that drew you to books? Well, I thought if I wasn't going to be a banker, then I couldn't work in an office because if you were going to work in an office, then sensibly you work in a bank yes. because it's quite exceptionally well paid and, and actually interesting and, and with sort of clever people. But once I decided not to do that, then I felt I had to do something for myself and of the freedoms that that came with that, and and frankly, my two sort of main interests were traveling and and reading, um, and I sort of thought of a few ideas around sort of how one might make a living out of traveling and doing travely type things, or do something around books. Mm-hmm. And given the whole sort of reason for making the career change was actually to be in one place, that probably ruled out the travel side of things, or I couldn't quite work out how to to do it sensibly. Um, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll set up a bookshop and see how it goes. Which is is now potentially, well, maybe then, but now you have that sort of entrepreneurialism and starting new things seems to be something that now we do. But then that was a big move because, well, you had this passion and I love you saying that this was your passion. You know, people listening always speak about, speak about sort of, Holly, how do I start? What would I start? I want to do something for myself, but what is it that I do? And I always talk about go back to your passions. Um, However obscure they might seem, go back to your passions because that's probably where the seeds of your idea lie. And I love hearing this because you basically decided to start a bookshop. You had that instinct. Your first location was in Marylebone. The thing is that this is not just another bookshop. It is basically a bookshop of dreams. It's a stunning Edwardian building with oak galleries, bathed in natural light from the glass roof. It's got a huge arched window and it's undeniably beautiful. And it's even said to be, am I right in saying this, one of the first custom-built bookshops in the world? Certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, I think it's. I think it might even be just about the only one. Oh, really? My um, goodness. There, there are a few other sort of spectacular ones in the world. You were 26 years old when you founded this bookshop and it's an ambition and an ambitious sort of start. Was it your intention that if you were going to do it, then you were going to make an impact. Did you see that this was going to be your life? I certainly hoped that it would be. And I had the arrogance of youth. So I actually left the bank age 24 and then spent two years both sort of really nailing the idea and and thinking of working it through and raising the money and finding mm-hmm. the premises and all of those things that so I at least uh, needed a, a certain patience. Um, and I certainly wanted to, to really do it as well as I conceivably could. In, in retrospect, I could have done it quicker, yeah. um, but I'm not sure I'd have done it as well. And as you say, it was you know, trying to find a really beautiful premises was important to me. I think a bookshop is a is an aesthetic experience. Yes. It's a physical environment that you're creating and therefore ha- finding one that was beautiful enough was important to me and looked at a number of beautiful buildings. And then completely fortuitously, this one on Maribyrn High Street came up, which was then actually not a known street. It was mm. a sort of strangely lost little thoroughfare with a mix of sort of pre-ordinary shops on it, far from the sort of rather swanky 
place it is today. Not least, I think, perhaps because we're there as this beautiful bookshop that people come to. When you thought about your bookshop, what did you feel was going to be your, your USP? Well, it was at a time when there were a lot of bookshops opening. Tim Waterston's was, was opening his, Dylan's, Otterkers, Methven's, um, Hammocks. There were a lot of chains then uh, and they were all growing. So it was a time definitely of excitement within books. I just wanted to do one that was different to all of those. And, and that continues to be my lodestone, which is, it doesn't really matter how you do it as long as it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my case, I arrange all of, and continue to do so to this day, arrange all the subjects by country. Um, so you put all the novels, the history, the cookery, the everything um, uh, about where it's set and where it is about. And that's a different way of looking at books. Mm. Every other bookshop obviously goes by subject. They have biography, history, fiction, and so on. At Dawn Books, we don't. We have looking behind you, you have a map on the wall for those yes. who are only listening. Yes. Anyway, we have, you know, a, a South America section and there is Brazil and under Brazil, we have all the novels um, by Brazilians, but also novels set in Brazil. We have the histories, we have the anthropology, we have the cookery. So if you're interested in Brazil and that's a culture that then you will find all of those books in one place and all together. And it muddles up books and it it Mm. provokes you to browse and look through books in a completely different way. And most, well, not everybody, but there are enough people who are interested in cultures and places. And for them, I think we have a really fabulous bookshop. And so actually you got to bring in travel in the end, didn't you? Well, indeed, yes. Uh, and, And indeed, all it is is a bookshop that reflects how I arrange the bookshops on my Yes, yes. I become interested in places and then I want to read about their culture, their religion. I want to read the novels. I want to really understand what Yemen or wherever it is is about. Um, And this is a shop that does that, a bookshop that does that, which nowhere else does. Otherwise, you have to sort of hunt through. How on earth do you find out which novels have been set in Yemen? I I do love this. James, tell me, those early days can't have been easy, though, because I know that you, you raised some money, didn't you, through the business expansion scheme, which no longer exists, unfortunately. Sadly. But tell me about those early days because I can imagine it's not easy running a bookshop. Just as an aside, Rishi Sunak, if you're listening, for goodness sake, get in the business expansion scheme mm. going again because a lot of entrepreneurs are, have ideas and they have energy, but they don't have money. And, and I was certainly one of those. And the, the expansion scheme basically allowed um, investors to to invest in genuinely entrepreneurial businesses at full risk of their money, but they got a tax break back right. and, and that made it more attractive for them. Uh, and that allowed me to raise some money. But having raised what was you know, a relatively small amount of money and also having been a banker, I was well aware of the dangers of banks mm-hmm. um, and how banks work. And I was definitely not giving personal guarantees and the kind of things that, frankly, banks do require and still require and which nobody in their right mind should ever give mm-hmm. because when you're on, you know, particularly starting out a business, a lot of things are out of your control and a lot of yes. things can go badly wrong. And if your house is on the line or your future livelihood, that seems completely unjustified in terms of the consequences of going bankrupt and all the rest. And we have a culture which continues to make, to have a stigma around failure. And yet the reality is, and the brutal truth is, that most, not most, but a lot of new businesses will fail. And it won't be for lack of effort and application. It will just be a combination of bad luck, slightly getting the numbers wrong and all the rest. Um, and the last thing you need is, is some bank who's going to 
hold you in hock and make a misery of, of a considerable amount of time thereafter. I now work in the US predominantly and their culture is, you know, accepts failure. Right. Bankruptcy is, is an easy process. In fact, most entrepreneurs have failed a few times before they're successful. And that's unlike in the UK is of no consequence. In fact, it's often you think, well, you've been through that failure. That'll, that'll really help yes. you with the next one. Whereas <laughs> here they look at you and go, yeah, you're useless. And I came within a whisker of it all going horribly wrong. We opened in 1990, having committed to Elise at the end of 89, uh, 1989, which for those who hopefully most of you who are not around then was, was one of those sort of peaks before a recession. We took Elise at far too much money. There was then a recession, everything closed around us. You were like one of three shops, weren't you, left open on Manly Yeah, the, the, the entire Marvin High Street yeah. closed, effectively. Landlords, as is their want, um, you know, dug their heels in and tried to keep the rents, uh, didn't give any concessions and everybody closed. Um, and that, that was the only time we ever had a sort of a queue at our till. And it was sort of me and one other and occasionally two other people working there. We always got a bit worried because we thought the bailiffs were in the shop. <laughs> That those were the customers, yes. That's why there were three people. There would be one customer and two bailiffs. I think otherwise, it was, you know, just a customer every once in a while, very, very quiet, desperate. And we eked our way through just, um, mm. largely actually thanks to some uh, a fabulous board and a very, very supportive uh, chairman of my board who not only sort of, well, what he really did was was keep um, a faith and, mm -hmm. and sort of maintain our morale so that, you know, just day to day we got through things. It's, it's quite underestimated, isn't it, James, having that person in those beginning times, actually during the whole of your sort of entrepreneurial journey, to have someone that helps the entrepreneur keep strong. You know, because it can be incredibly lonely. I've had it personally where I've had a gentleman who has been just by my side for about a decade. Low times, he would just be my champion, just would be my champion for my idea or, or faith in me, just when you had to be strong for everybody else. I, I think it's quite an important um, conversation. I think it's hugely important. And you can either formalise it, which is yep. what I did. Yep. I actually, at the outset, said I'm going to have a a, a very small, but a but a board of directors, um, and they can either literally be directors and have have that association, or or act as one. Mm -hmm. But you have a board, and you have the formality of having regular meetings, and that gives you that support and a place, a neutral place in which to really sort of talk through the business, because your immediate friends and partners and and things are probably sick to the back teeth of this sort of obsessive thing. And, you know, the last thing they want to do is talk through over over the Weetabix or in the evening. Yeah. Yet again, you know, the minuta of your business problems. But if you've formalised a board structure and you've got somebody, ideally more than one person, who's invested in emotionally mm -hmm. and intellectually in the business and who you can go to for advice, I've always done it and still do it, actually. Um, I had it at Dawn Books right from day one. And I think it was invaluable. And then when I went to Waterstones, mm -hmm. had, had a quite exceptional uh, board that supported me through the very difficult early years there and, and now doing the same at Barnes & Noble. 
Obviously, we've sailed uh, as a country, as a world, through stormy waters of this global pandemic for the last 12 months. And there are many, many businesses that have faced this unprecedented challenges. Do you now look back at the time going through what you went through with Daunt Books, those early years, the challenges, believing that there were bailiffs, not customers in the shop? Do you feel that that actually strengthened not only your commitment to the idea, but strengthened you as someone to run that business. And what advice might you give others facing difficult times right now with their businesses? Well, I wish I could say that it's sort of positive. It's sort of a bit like going for a run. You know, it's painful, but you're getting fitter <laughs> yes. kind of thing. But, but actually, I think it's just plain miserable. And it would be a lot better if you were Not, successful yes. and didn't have to go through <laughs> those things. But if you've done it once and then circumstances land you in it again, you're definitely in better shape, mm -hmm. painful as it might be. And particularly if you're unfortunate enough or fortunate enough, depending on how you look at it, to do it early in your career and when you're young, then evidently it sort of, it educates you and it gives you the tricks um, and to, to get you through it. Quite a lot of which are purely psychological, uh, which is, you know, let's just take every day as it comes. Let's not panic. Uh, let's see this one through. Let's eke it out. Let's also be, you know, when when you sent trouble in the air, then sort of act quickly and resolutely because it might be really bad. And you know, that certainly has helped me hugely this time last year or a bit earlier than this time last year when the pandemic mm. sort of emerged. It was, okay, here we go again. What do we do? Because we don't know how long this thing is going to last. It's clearly going to be catastrophic. What do we do to get this business through? And how do we protect the greatest number of livelihoods as we do so, as, as well as the actual integrity of the business? You look back, and in my case, unfortunately, I, I've got a few things to look back at, you know, the early days of Waterstones, which were terrible. And then the early days of Dawn Books, which were really, really tough. And, and so, yes, you're right. You do learn. It does give you an experience. Is it one I wish on anyone? No. Do you think instinct played a role there for you? I think it's often evidently difficult for some people to make tough decisions and that can be perhaps part of, you mm -hmm. know, the personality, you know, mm -hmm. the sunny, optimistic. Yes. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of people who, who will bury their head in the sands. Um, if you've really come up against it, you know that burying your head in yeah. the sands isn't going to end well. An ostrich <laughs> position is not a good one. It's really not a good one. At the same time, clearly, whether you're a very small business and it's just a small number of people or, or you're a larger business, you, you, you are, when you're running something or owning something, you, you have the welfare and livelihoods of a lot of people um, to consider. And, and it's both how do you not overreact because you know, the euphemisms for how you get through this are, are disguising the fact often this means cutting costs and mm -hmm. cutting back. And, and there's always a personal consequence to that. And you, you have to be very, very sure it's worth it. Um, and I can quite see that for some people that's just too difficult, mm -hmm. um, which I think is why quite a lot of businesses fail. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. Someone's angry in your town. That's a two vans have decided to face off with each other. <laughs> <laughs> They're not having a good start to the day, James. They're not having a nice time like us. 
We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. So every week we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey. Last week I spoke to Andy Poplar, founder of Vinegar and Brown Paper, and Jack Laverick, founder of Clay Club, all about the art of successful collaboration. For me, the best collaborations are when you truly know yourself, right? So it's when you know your brand heart. You know, I talk about the brand heart, your DNA of your company, the elements that make you. I feel that if you don't know your brand enough, you're not going to be confident enough to collaborate and you're not going to spot the yin to the yang or the missing pieces that can come together like a jigsaw piece. You've got to know what your business stands for. And once you truly know yourself, and I think once you know your values and your passions, what are all the invisible bits? You know, once you know that, you're going to basically, I would say, make a collaboration more successful than if you don't do that this work. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram as we tackle a different area of business. With a continued commitment to empower you, Dell are giving away a tech in a box every week. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co, where you'll also find loads of tangible advice on everything from marketing to brand and HR, all thanks to Dell. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. after the first shop opened, you opened the second Daunt Books and now you have nine stores in, in total, six Daunt Bookshops, but three others that have opened under different names. And that is phenomenal. But let's fast forward a few more years to 2011 when you were made CEO of Waterstones. Firstly, I wanted to ask you from a personal level, I always thought that being an entrepreneur, you were slightly unemployable. Once you've gone it on your own, what was that transition? Before we talk about Waterstones, what was that transition like to go into another business? It was fascinating. I, I definitely couldn't have gone into, nor would have wanted to go into a business that was stable or successful or yeah. any any of those things. And and the only reason I went into Waterstones is because it was literally at the brink of failure. And that would have been a really bad thing for British bookselling and um, yes. the world of books, obviously, in which I was sort of fully immersed at that point. I definitely sort of brought in a very unconventional, non-corporate mindset. Yep. Also brought in a a philosophy which was embedded very much in my own bookshops, which is if you let intelligent booksellers get on with things, they will run really nice bookshops. Um, and I thought that if you applied that principle to Waterstones, you could effectively run close to 300 shops as individual shops, as close as possible to as independent entities in, in themselves. And so I didn't come in as somebody who is, you know, a manager as such, mm -hmm. uh, let alone bringing in the McKinsey-esque KPMG <laughs> consultant type approach to things. I was very much um, trying to bring the, the ethos of, in, mm -hmm. of, of independence and independent thinking and, and a certain amount of entrepreneurialism. And I think that a, to be a a Waterstones shop manager is, is in some ways, is to be an entrepreneur. It's your shop. You're responsible for it. It's your team. You have to galvanize them. You have complete freedom as to how you set up your shop and how you 
what you make it look like and the personality that you invest in it. That's what an entrepreneur does with their own business. It's just in, in this case, obviously, you know, somebody else is looking after the rent and somebody else is making sure the bills get paid. Controversially, when you started, though, you could see things that other people couldn't see. So you put an end to the agreement with publishers to have books prominently displayed on the tables at the front of the stores. I remember them. Um, and you decided to get rid of this sort of three for two offer. This was a huge income to Waterstones. You were shaking it up. You had decided that you needed to get to the root of the difficulties and actually that was fueling the difficulties. Tell me about those decisions. Uh, they can't have been easy, but were you resolute? Did you absolutely know that you needed to make it more local? I mean, in a strange way, they were easy. It was easy because, you know, one, the business was going bust. So right. it was either going to turn around or it was going to close. So that, <laughs> yes. that helped. And I also knew that all I had to do was make it possible for each individual Waterstones to act as a dawn books, i.e. to mm -hmm. choose what books it had, display them as it liked, mm -hmm. roster its, um, its employees and its booksellers at whatever times made most sense for them, you know, run the shop as an independent entity. Now, in order to do that, you just had to strip away all of the elements of central control. And that included the fact that publishers paid for books to go into bookshops and their mandatory positioning within a bookshop. Exactly the same as I'm now doing in, in the US with at Barnes & Noble. If, if you're going to give that autonomy and that sense of responsibility to the individual shop manager, you have to strip all of that away. It's helpful and coincidental that at the same time, you obviously then don't need all of the people who enforce that compliance, Yes. which if you're going bankrupt is very helpful because a lot of people have to leave the business, which brutal as it sounds is what you're doing is you're protecting the shop and the shop staff and you're completely mm -hmm. taking apart the head office structures. Now, most of those head of people, office people are, not all, but most are retailers. When they leave Waterstones, they go and work for Boots or whoever it is. So I, I think we stripped out an, an immense number of head office jobs, but used those savings to reinvest in our shops and also liberated the shops um, so they could get on and, and turn themselves into, well, as good as they were capable of doing, uh, bookshops. And, and again, I do not believe that I, with my obviously very BBC middle class voice and, and, and a background <laughs> and an upbringing and, and a personal situation in London, which reflects exactly that, I should not be telling people in Grimsby or Bolton or Blackpool how to run their shops. Um, what I should be doing is supporting them and equipping them to do it however they best judge it to be done. This is just fascinating because you were encouraging individuality in the sort of spirit of the independent, but with this buying power of the chain store. And potentially, is that you know, this is such a big subject, but is that really what's gone wrong with chain stores generally? But I wanted to just pick on something that you did say, which I think is going to lead us into this conversation, which is, I would rather there was no Waterstones. I'm hoping this is what you said. I'm not making this up. But basically, I think you were alluding to the fact that you would rather that there was lots of independence prospering. Oh, uh, for sure. If one was able to magic a retail world, then I would. it would be one peopled by lots of independents um, in, in whatever sphere of retail, mm -hmm. bookshops, clothes shops, shoe shops, uh, and all the rest. But there are some strengths to having a, a chain. And I certainly, from Dawn Books, we... Now, not everybody is an entrepreneur. Not everybody wants the 
responsibility and the stress of, of owning a business. And some people like working within an umbrella. And as, as long as they're working for a really nice mm-hmm. company that has good values and all the rest, then I think that's a career and a, and a livelihood that is perhaps more comfortable. Uh, so at Dawn Books, we've actually expanded as much to accommodate the career aspirations of the people working for us as anything else. At what point does, you know, what, what is the, the natural limits of that? And when are you just opening for the sake of opening? And I certainly, you know, I'm very comfortable with a, you know, a 9, 10, 11, 12 shop chain. That makes sense to me over time. A 300 store chain, let alone a 300 store chain that's identical, makes little sense. Mm. And, and as you say, it's fundamentally, it's pretty boring to go into the same shop, irrespective of where you turn up. Actually, I don't think that is quite true. I mean, I think if you're going into buying you know, into a pharmacy, then you yes. know, generally you would like it to, to, yes. to have the array of <laughs> headache pills or whatever it is you're after. But most retail should have flair. And in the absence of flair, then it's unsurprising to me that people go online. Um, if If you can walk your way around a Gap store blindfolded because it's the same as every single other Gap store, you might as well just go on to Gap.com. And once you go on to Gap.com and it's all the same, you might as well go on to Amazon.com because mm-hmm. Amazon does it cheaper and more efficiently. And that's pretty dispiriting well, at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. And and that's it's a subject close to my heart and uh, what's going to happen with our high street. Obviously, we've gone through this period of time where we're going to, you know, we're coming up to all the shops opening up again. I can only imagine what it was like closing 300 Waterstones and, and what that has. And I'm going to, again, touch on that. But just going to that high street that talking about, you know, mentioning Amazon, you know, I was chatting to Mark Constantine, founder, obviously, of Lush, and he was saying his advice to small businesses, to independents, was do what Amazon can't. You know, that is the point in you. That's why you're unique. Today, what would you give as a recommendation for those bookshops who are now opening back up again to compete with the likes of Amazon? And why I've been so so obsessed with speaking to you because I believe that we're slightly asleep at the wheel when it comes to our communities with our high streets. I believe that actually the dinosaurs leaving, I hope, will create regeneration in our communities. I believe that there are these pillars of our communities, the bookshop, the butcher, the baker, And then there'll be the equivalent of the next generation. You know, what will that be? More immersive experiences. Brands like myself or Holly & Co, you come in and actually it's much more than just the shop. It's the brand that sits online, on social, on podcasts, all those things. And it's an experience. Tell me about what you believe is going to be potentially that future in relation to bookshops and competing with the giant such as Amazon. Well, bookshops by definition, sell exactly the same product as Amazon. Mm-hmm. Your memoir, when it comes out, will have the same words in it, whether I sell it in my bookshops <laughs> or, or on Amazon. So that's unusual. You know, Lush can go and do a pinker bath bomb or an exclusive this or that. Uh, we can't. So what we're about is providing an experience and getting ourselves to a point where the customer actually who buys the book in a bookshop believes and experiences that book to be a better one than when it pops through their letterbox in in an Amazon envelope. Mm. And that's sort of clearly illogical, but I firmly believe it's true. It is, yes. Uh, The enjoyment of browsing in a good bookshop 
where you have intelligent, friendly and informed service where you meet a friend. And that is a pure pleasure, actually. And not to have that available would be desperately sad. And bookshops are definitely places of community. They're places to meet. They're places, if you go into, particularly um, actually in, in less prepossessing towns, if you go into a Waterstones in term time at four in the afternoon, you will find it full of teenagers who've come out of school and they're just killing a few hours. Now, they're either killing it because they're eyeing up the person browsing, you know, one <laughs> row down in, in the manga and they want to strike up a conversation. But they're social spaces. They're quiet spaces. They're safe. They're engaging. And I've certainly, you know, in my years at Dawn Books, you know, I've had kids grow up in the bookshop. I mean, throughout the term time, every at the end of school, in they'd come and they'd read a book for an hour or two, presumably waiting for a parent to come home or whatever it is, and put the book carefully back on the shelf, normally with a matchstick or something in it to mark the place, and they'd be back the next day to finish the book, you know, and, and on they'd go. And, and that's what a bookshop should be. It's part of a community. And I think that applies actually to the whole web of retail. And it is absolutely tragic that it is unravelling at the moment, and unravelling, I think, partly because of the pressures of online, but also significantly because of the obstacles that uh, the government puts in place, particularly through business rates. You know, effectively, the cost structures mm -hmm. that we've sort of had imposed on, on us. But I am you know, broadly optimistic that most of it will survive. I think the tragedy is that in deprived environments where there's less money, that may not be the case. And I definitely know we have Waterstones on high streets where very few shops are now occupied. And that is awful. I wanted to talk to you about this last year. You know, Waterstones sell 40 million books a year, 300 stores, and overnight everything closed. But many of your retail neighbours were still open. So WH Smith, for example. Um, and I remember, do you remember that first lockdown when we were talking about clothes being sold in supermarkets, but yet independent clothes shops had to close. And now you fought um, to keep your bran branches open, feeling that bookshops are essential. Tell me about that. Well, I, um, what I believed and still do believe is that confronting this sort of pandemic, that at least we should sort of follow some sort of reasonable logic. And it makes perfect sense to have a lockdown and tell everybody to stay at home um, and to keep truly essential shops open, i.e. the food and, and pharmacies, and say to everybody else that we, we are reinforcing a public health message and you're all closing. But that actually isn't what happened. They mm. left a, a rag bag of retailers open and often actually the larger chains, you know, as you say, WH Smith stayed open. There isn't any conceivable logic to that. Um, and the people who got absolutely hammered were a few chains of, of which obviously Waterstones is one. You know, we're, we're frankly big enough and we'll, you know, we were, we're able to knuckle down. But the independents, mm. just swathes of independence, because by the very nature of being an independent, you are the clothes shop, the gift shop, the this shop, the that shop. Mm. And they, at a, at a stroke of a pen, closed all of those. Now, initially, when at the outset of the pandemic, nobody really knew what was going on. Perhaps discretion was the better part of valour. But as in most European countries, and in fact, most countries around the world, as the nature of what we were confronting became more obvious, I think that the government could have learnt from that. And one of them it was that people are still out there shopping. Mm. They kept open the greater part of the high street, actually. 
You could still go to Cafe Nero and buy your cup of coffee. You could still, you know, okay, you had to take it out, but you still went in and queued and got it and walked out again. You clearly went to W. Smith and Ryman's and M and Co. and all of the, the not M and Co. the B and M and the mm-hmm. discount retailers as well as the supermarkets, lots and lots of places. And I do believe that they could have done what many Europeans have done and said, okay, we understand actually retail can be run safely. It is being run safely and therefore open your shops, but do so with social distancing and all the sneeze guards in Mm -hmm. place and the capacity constraints and all of the things that we had in place and were able to run efficiently. And that would have saved an awful lot of businesses. As with rates, I think this government really does need to confront the clear necessity to right some wrongs Mm. and simply ignoring them or brushing them under the carpet or even worse than that trotting out sort of over optimistic simplicities about everything is going to be fantastic um, is deeply unhelpful and we could end up with a real high street catastrophe if they don't act what would be your top three sort of wrongs that could be made right? I think they need to now address business rates. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally have campaigned for a, and, and believe we should have an online sales tax above a threshold so that it impacts big businesses, not small ones. And you know, we understand about thresholds. VAT, after all, doesn't apply to very small businesses. And you could say online sales tax above X million. Yeah. And that would hit businesses like Waterstones, which are actually omni-channel, we would end up paying pretty much the same amount of tax, but it would take and transfer cost from our shops into our online channel, which would encourage us and allow us to keep the shops open. Mm -hmm. John Lewis announced another raft of shop closures, thousands of jobs going, again, communities really, uh, I think, being sort of devastated by the loss of of this bellwether iconic retailer. But an online sales tax would cost John Lewis almost certainly the same because half of their business is now online. It would hit Amazon and the pure play online retailers more. But why are they being given this quite ridiculous and unfair advantage? Absolutely. Because they don't bear the tax burden that we have through mm-hmm. business rates. It's an outdated, it's been outdated for Forever. well over a decade. Yeah. And George Osborne, Conservative Chancellor, should have done Philip Hammond, Conservative Chancellor, should have. And so we go on. And, and Rishi Sunak and, and his team at the Treasury, I think, have no excuse not to deal with this. Um, but at the same time, the bigger retailers will be lobbying against it. Yes. Um, if you've moved online, as Waterstones has, as Next has, as M&S has, that's the last thing you want. And you will be campaigning against it. Um, I think that it's for politicians to make some difficult choices and and withstand that pressure and say, well, tough luck, Waterstone, suck it up. Mm -hmm. Um, We will prioritise high streets and local employment. And that's why you will pay 2% or something, 3% as an online tax. You've got all the infrastructure in place to know what your online sales are. It's not difficult. If you post something to somebody, it's online. If they pay for it online, it's online. You're going to give us 2-3%. Um, it probably would be revenue positive uh, for the Treasury. And clearly, otherwise, this goose that's laying the golden eggs is quite certain to be effectively slaughtered, if, if not starved, as more and more shops close. When I 
was asked by Penguin to write a new kind of business book, one that brings colour and creativity to life, I was both honoured and daunted. As the world went into lockdown and small businesses faced their greatest challenge in recent history, I put pen to paper. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is a book I'm deeply proud of, having poured my heart and soul into the pages of what I believe is the ultimate small business bible. I hope it provides you with the guidance, support and insights that I wish I'd had at the start of my business journey 20 years ago. From money fears to sharing my biggest mistakes so you don't have to, alongside my ultimate guide to brand and how to listen to your gut instinct. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is packed full of tangible advice alongside colour and creativity. And in a world first, its very own product collection. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out on the 6th of May. Head to holly.co slash book to pre-order your copy now. I'm interested what you feel about councils and localization and the responsibility of towns. How do you stop a landlord's basically dictating what is going to be in your high street? I think that landlords at the end of the day, although I think there should be some reform of the of lease structures, so that the notion of the upward only rent is anachronistic and, and hugely damaging, and that should be dealt with. But I think that Broadly and ultimately, landlords are subject to market forces and they got a property. If they don't rent it as a sensible rent, then it'll lie empty. Entrepreneurs without capital need somebody to own that building because they will not be able to do so themselves. So I'm I'm not actually, I broadly think, although clearly there are some landlords who are exceptionally difficult and greedy, I think as a broad class, landlords are sensible and are likely to be governed by the market and will be supportive of a, of a positive retail environment. Councils need to understand that retail matters and need to do everything to support and promote it, parking charges and all of those kind of mm-hmm. obstacles that are put in the in the way of you know, vibrant and happy high streets. So they need to invest in their communities as well. And you know, again, you would hope that ultimately democracy would put councillors in place that follows sensible policies. I think far too few do. And short-term um, ex- expediency often often achieves exactly the opposite of what should be done. But again, going back to what, what else would I do? I do think a sort of something that supports entrepreneurs and makes, you know, we, we touched on it earlier, both from a sort of investment perspective, something like the business expansion scheme. Um, there, there are some things in place, but I think those could be strengthened. And I think that sort of more needs to be done and really thought through in terms of how do you put proper structures in place to protect against fraud and fraudulent behaviour and excessive risk-taking. And perhaps some of these measures that the Treasury has put in place to force banks to lend to and support businesses could live on in a way. I think banks are, Mm -hmm. we're always risk-reverse, averse, and will be increasingly so. Therefore, putting in measures in which the government helps banks lend to businesses, particularly on an unsecured basis, could be hugely beneficial to entrepreneurial activity. We're really going to need entrepreneurs to step up, um, be that in retail or or in business as a whole. The economy is clearly hugely impacted by uh, the pandemic and Brexit is going to be 
catastrophic for large parts of the economy and for tax revenue. You know, as you have these sort of steps down, um, something needs to, to regenerate. And, and we are a very entrepreneurial nation. So yes. if I was in the Treasury, I would be looking at all of those measures to sort of unleash the potential of, of entrepreneurs and make it easier uh, for them to, to get on and establish new businesses. Gosh, Wow, I just yes, I'm listening and I'm I'm taking note and I think there's also a huge power and I think that you would agree with this in us all voting with our money as well. So that's from that side of things, but there's consumer behavior, isn't there? There is that conscious moment where you go to support an independent bookshop, you go to whatever it is, you don't go to Amazon. You go and support a uh, local butcher or florist, you don't go into a super- Supermarket. Have you seen that through the pandemic? Have you seen support in your online sales? Have you seen that sort of resurgence of reading? Because that, that's my notion at the moment. For those who've been allowed to potentially have a pause in their lives, to rediscover some elements, have you seen sales increase at Waterstones? And also, what is your view on people voting with their money? I, I certainly think well, one, during the pandemic, yes, people have been reading a lot more and thinking a lot more. And that's positive for my own business. But but I think sort of generally, do I think that people should be really thinking about how they spend money? Absolutely. And they should be doing so from, yes, these sort of local perspectives. Also, the ecology and global warming and mm-hmm. considerations about sort of, do you really need something? And if you do, how do you ensure that you buy it in, in the most responsible manner possible? For, for myself, you know, we talked about the pandemic and the pandemic has, has clearly sort of dominated our business lives, probably perhaps in the long run, as consequential, if not much more consequential, has been the Black Lives Matter which um, movement, which erupted at, at the same time. And I hope will lead to enduring and, and positive change there. And you know, we, we as business leaders need to support and understand it and engage with it. Um, within society, I think this sort of sense of that people need to be both personally accountable, but also that businesses need to be accountable within society is is a really positive thing and one that is not just for politicians to mm-hmm. engage and support and progress these issues. It's for all of us. We go on to now your where you are at the moment, because you've been asked to basically do it all over again on a vast scale with Barnes & Noble in the US. Obviously, huge legacy there again, and you've taken up the baton of preserving bookshops in communities uh, across the water. Tell me about this. And I'm presuming that legacy is a very important thing to you. Yeah, and for better or for worse, I'm I'm a bookseller. And obviously, as as an independent bookseller for 25 years before Waterstones sort of brought that into Waterstones. And I think it's been very successful and very proud of Waterstones. And I think that many of the shops are extraordinary. When the same sort of difficulties beset Barnes & Noble, which is the last remaining US bookseller, just as Waterstones was the last of all of those Dylan's, Otakas, Mathers and Methvens and all the rest. Barnes & Noble is in the US and, and again, also just had failed to understand how it made its shops relevant in, in a world of Amazon. Sales declining every year, profits getting back to nothing. So trying to do the same over there, um, I think is equally important. Um, and actually, in the world of books, we are very much transatlantic. Books are, public, are dominated by publishers, and it's the same publishers on both sides of the Atlantic publishing 
pretty much the same books on the same day in the same manner. So if bookshops are going to sort of continue to be part of that ecosystem and, and the crucial part that I think they should be, we need Barnes & Noble to, to prosper. You know, all, all of the infrastructures that support the physical bookshops, independent bookshops, are not going to remain just for independent bookshops because there aren't enough of them. They're tiny. You need the big chain mm-hmm. sort of sitting there really doing the volumes to justify all the distribution centers and logistics and all the rest. So it, I, I think it's an important thing. I, Barnes & Noble is, is very, very like Waterstones was in 2011, and we've set out to do exactly the same, empower local shop teams to get on and improve their, their stores, which they are doing with extraordinary vigor. Is it great to do it again? You've obviously personally learned all the lessons. Are, are you finding that it's very useful to be able to impart that knowledge with other people? Or are you finding other challenges that you, were unique to this situation? It, it's a lot more helpful to be able to say, you know, look, it, it worked at Waterstones, you know. Yeah, it's, you know, just get on with it. And and, and again, you know, one of the, the key things that I'm do is is also is we have to accept failure that's one of the things that chains um, retailers are very bad at they want standards to be met they want minimum standards um, and if you sort of run a, a place like I do that goes out the window because people are doing whatever they want and if Holly <laughs> decides she wants to do something completely crazy in her store she will um, and then our job is not to go and clamp down and sack her and do all the rest and say, no, you have to do it like this. It's to say, well, Holly, what were you trying to do? And Mm -hmm. talk it through and help the the crazier and and less successful initiatives sort of Mm. get themselves back to something closer to common sense. So we're we're having an interesting time in America where many stores are becoming really dramatically better. Most are at least not worse. And then a few have gone totally off the rails, which occasionally can be quite amusing. (laughs) This has just been most wonderful morning. Thank you, James, so, so much for so many lessons there and things for us to think about, especially for the high street. I end all my interviews with the analogy that running your own business is like being on an epic roller coaster and certainly your cart would be crammed full of books. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows throughout your career? It's no fun when your business is in trouble. Mm. That's just awful. You inevitably will have personal responsibilities. Other people will go down and lose their jobs with you. You'll lose their money. Um, and, and I think that the difficulties and the stress sort of knowing you're in that situation can't be sort of underestimated. And I don't believe anyone can get through that without waking up at three in the morning and four in the morning and five in the morning. And then it's another God awful day, and then it's all over again, and that's really tough. And many, many entrepreneurs go through that difficulty, and and you know, obviously some of them, you know, all their worst fears come to pass. So I, I definitely, having been there, um, I, I respect just sort of quite how awful that is. I would second that absolutely, and conversely, with the wind in your hair, holding your favourite book in in the sky, what would be your greatest high? It's it's a cliche, but it is the people. Um, as you as you build teams, um, you you work with really nice people, and if it's all going well, 
you know, there there isn't a greater pleasure. And that pleasure is actually in the sort of the mutual success and mutual sense of achievement that you have with people who, who become your friends. I was wondering whether you were going to say, because when researching you for this interview, one of the things I absolutely loved, and I wondered whether it was the argument that you won about when you were at Daunt Books and you we're looking at the bookshelves and the degree to which the bookshelves were on the wall. And I think people were trying to persuade you that it was four degrees where the light would hit the book at the right point and you won. No, I'm not sure I did win, actually. I won only in as much as, you know, by the time I was running Waterstones, I had 300 shops that kind of had to go that way. Uh, no, that was with actually with a, an amazing and wonderful and extraordinary Italian designer who built a couple of bookshops in Italy, which I thought were sensational. We were then sort of working out, sort of talking through how I was doing the new Waterstones. And he was very adamant that it should be at one angle. And I was very clear it should be at another. So you didn't necessarily win. So it can't maybe be one of your highs. I think he would have characterised it as a game of tennis. Um, <laughs> and the rally was, he would say, was still going on. Oh, this has been a wonderful morning. James, thank you so, so much for your time. I'm very glad that your banking career came to an end because books needed you. And yeah, it's been fantastic. It's that time of the interview where I'm going to hand over to you to talk to your younger self. I know you haven't been able to write a letter to us today, but I know you do have some guiding principles that you'd like to share. And I just cannot wait. If I was to try and give advice to my sort of earlier self, um, I think I would actually, again, and it is the cliche, and um, but I would concentrate on sort of how you treat people and um, and stick by these sort of core principles which are universal. In fact, most of them are sort of embedded within most of the, the great religions um, of basically treat people as, as you would hope to be treated yourself and emphasis on kindness and, and respect. And I think that's important irrespective of how you're conducting your life. And well, we've touched on it in, in this conversation a lot. We as business leaders, as entrepreneurs, we're not trying to just make money or support our own livelihoods or even the livelihoods of the immediate people who work for us. We are hopefully contributing to society and, and the enjoyment, wider enjoyment of people within our communities. And we do so in, in all sorts of ways and concentrate on, on that, recognize its importance at any point that one is making a business decision or indeed a personal one. How is it impacting others? As I say, you treat others as, as you would hope to be treated yourself. Sometimes sort of early on, perhaps one is, is a little too concentrating on, on just achieving success. Um, ultimately, satisfaction is is likely to come from getting to somewhere where you're in harmony. At the end of the day, that will come about if you behave well at all points. It's sort of very easy to say, but I think we are all of us sort of being confronted by that more and more. Um, so again, you know, as, as business leaders and entrepreneurs, we are always going to be um, working with people, almost certainly employing people. And we need to sort of keep these sort of key issues absolutely front and, and center of everything that we do. And, and the more people who are doing that, the richer and the better our society will be. And we have a society which is significantly troubled and riven. And I think whether in uh, the United Kingdom or the United States, you know, some of the recent um, impulses that have, have swept through the political world have, I think, been deeply unhelpful. I think we need to 
sort of engage with the positive ones that, that equally have done so. And, and as I say, if I was asked for what 2020 is about, it isn't actually about the pandemic. The pandemic will pass. It's Hopefully it is about social justice, uh, most prominently articulated through the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's very far from my world, um, white middle class, elderly male as, as it gets. Um, but that's the society in which we live. And we all of us should do everything we can to support it and push it forward and get ourselves to a place where social justice and economic equality is is achieved. Um, let's hope our politicians support that and let us all as entrepreneurs support it. Thank you, James. Gosh, wise words to your younger self and uh, wise words to us all. And thank you for your time today. I wish you all the luck in transforming the Barnes & Noble uh, legacy in the US and thank you for what you do for our high streets and I look forward to listening to your views in the coming years on how we all support our independence and we all support the high street and we, we vote with our money. It's been a privilege, absolutely James, so thank you so much for your time. Well likewise, thank you very much. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.